Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Catherine Monaco Douglas, founder and director of the Long Island Young Widows and Widowers Group, which is also known as Widowed Not Alone. So, uh, Catherine, welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, it's always so wonderful to talk with people I find that, um, you know, are willing to have the conversation around grief because it can be uh, a topic people shy away from. So, so I'm really grateful that you're here. Today, we want to talk about the idea that, um, you know, when a person loses a spouse or a partner, um, the misconception that their grief is really centered only on the the loss of the person. Because what we want to recognize is that there are actually other kinds of losses that that come along with that loss of a person, uh, some secondary losses. So do you want to begin by kind of speaking to your experience of not just the loss of a person, but the secondary losses that go along with that when you lose your spouse or partner? Absolutely. Um, so I was 42 when I lost my husband, who was 44. And I was a housewife. I hadn't worked in 19 years. Um, I was a respiratory technician, and I couldn't go back to that kind of work. So for me, um, I lost an income. I had no income. I had <laughs> That was a secondary loss that many people would not recognize that now I had to go get a job. And I couldn't go back to what I did because I'd have to go back to school for another four years. Um, and I couldn't do that because I had an 11-year-old daughter, a 14-year-old, and an 18-year-old. And mostly my younger daughter, I had to get her ready for school, make lunch and all that. I, I just couldn't go back to school. I had to bring in an income. So I had to sell my house. Um, and I started a business for myself. So that was one thing that was really hard for me. Um, I also lost the co-parent. Um I had to raise my kids solo. It's something that you don't anticipate, I, you know, that you're going to do this alone. You think that you have this person to make these decisions with. And that was really difficult for me. So what I would tell myself is, my husband's name is Larry. I would say, what would Larry tell me to do? <laughs> and that really helped me because I didn't know what to do. <laughs> and hey. I didn't know how he thought. Like I would finish his sentences, you know, we were together 23 years. So I really knew like a lot of the, his thinking. And I would, would say, what would Larry want me to do? And I would think about what he would want me to do. And then I would make a decision whether I wanted to do that too. <laughs> uh -huh. and then I would make the decision when it came to my kids. Um, right. So yeah, the, you have the loss. 
the loss of the role, you have the loss of the economic status and the need to get a job. You have the loss of that um, that partner in parenting. Um, so yes. uh, the loss of that sounding board and the team, the, the team support of parenting. Yeah. Yeah, the, fam- the whole family unit now mm-hmm. is just me and my kids. So I mm-hmm. didn't have the whole family unit, um, which was big for us because we did mm-hmm. everything with the kids together. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know how to do it solo. Mm-hmm. Um, I also had a very big loss of self-confidence, mm-hmm. which I don't think people realize when you lose your spouse. Like I was very confident when he was here. And then all of a sudden I felt like I didn't have to do anything. Um, right. I didn't pay the bills in the house. I, you know, I didn't know where the gas was, where the water shut off was, how to blow out the sprinklers. We had put a pool in the year before he passed away. I, I didn't know how to shut the pool down, cover the pool. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. So I, I just had no confidence in anything. Um, and back when I lost my husband, I didn't use the internet because I was a housewife. So I wasn't on the computer. So I had to get myself a computer and start teaching myself how to do things, which I so- learned when it comes to confidence, that we don't get the confidence before we do something. We get the confidence after we accomplish it. So it's like if you're going to ride a bike, you never rode one before, you're afraid. But after you ride the bike, then all of a sudden you're confident. So all these things that I never did before, I was very fearful. Right. But then as you tried them, as they came up in their turn to be done and you tried them, had some success, maybe had some experiences you had to learn from, your confidence started to come back again. Absolutely. I started to get, I mean, I didn't even know how to pump my own gas. So um, like I went into a gas station and I said, I need gas. And the guy said to me, what pump are you? And I said, oh, I don't know. He said, there's a number. And I go back to the gas tank and it said uh, 87. So I go back and I say 87. He goes, lady, that's the octane. It's one, (laughs) two, three, or four. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And everyone in the room starts laughing at me. I still don't even know what they're laughing at because I didn't know. I didn't, I never did it. My husband took care of that, you know? Yep. Well, that's Um, it. You you don't know what you're missing until you lose your partner of, you know, 23 years is a long time to fall into different roles and patterns and habits of doing certain things in the relationship. And so all of a sudden you don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. There was a lot of uh, insecurities, you know, I had to sell a house all by myself, buy a house alone, Mm-hmm. All these things, doing it alone. Um, but again, once I sold, I sold my house without a real estate agent uh, because I didn't want to give a commission to anyone. I had my husband's clothes still in the closet. My friends helped me do an open house, and I sold it. And I didn't have to share anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and that money went towards my kids' education. So mm-hmm. I did do a lot of things. And when I accomplished them, I was proud of myself. Um, I didn't have him to cheer me on. And I was used to that, always giving me that cheering me on. You could do this. You got this. I had to cheer myself on. Mm-hmm. And that was another secondary loss. Yeah. Yeah. Just the emotional support and the the real kind of ongoing day-to-day encouragement that we give each other in relationship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was, so, a, I, it was a, big, a big void. 
Yeah. So you lose a person, but you also lose all these other things attached to the person or as a result of the person's absence. And so then, you know, you find yourself struggling to get through everything. And and you mentioned feeling all alone, feeling like you're facing this all alone. But you also mentioned that you had some friends that showed up to help you when you talked about the open house. You had some people in your life that showed up to help you with that. Um, and I guess yes. that kind of takes me to the next idea that we want to talk about today, which is the idea that, you know, you don't have to get through grief experiences alone, uh, that you can actually, that you can really benefit from support from your peers and your friends. Yes. Um, I was very blessed with a very loving family and my close friends. They were wonderful. Uh, but then I started to feel the need that I needed more like someone who understood my circumstances, like someone who really understood how alone I felt. Because even when I was with people, I still felt so alone. Um, right. And that's where I started to seek um, other widows and widowers, like just people that understood. Mm-hmm. People who had lived through something similar, the same kind of loss. Yes. So I went into a bereavement group. Um, and I made some friends there. Then I went, I took my kids to a bereavement group and it was a mixed group. It was like loss of sibling, grandparent, and that group I struggled with because I saw that the losses were different. Um, I felt that I really connected with people who really understood the losing the spouse and the secondary losses. Uh-huh. Yeah, they'd had a similar path. They'd lost some similar things in in the wake of losing their partner, their spouse. So you had this more of a connection to them. It felt less alone. When you're in a group with people who've experienced different kinds of losses, sometimes you can still feel alone. Yeah, because they don't understand that it's, um, you know, all your decision-making with your partner and they're just like a loss of a grandparent or a parent. You're not making a your decisions with them, your dreams, the things that are coming ahead in your life were not shared with them. It's like, I had to start all over. Like mm-hmm. I didn't know what to dream or I didn't have a goal. I was just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, it sounds like you had some real ideas about what you needed as you were, as you were working through that. And you went on, didn't you, to create Um, something out of that experience that would be available to other people. And, and, you know, this is something that's really so common people who experience the loss and find that, that uh, there's something they need in their grief, go on to create that in the world. You know, do you want to talk a little bit about how you've created this place for peer support? And, and uh, I would love to speak about that. So where we live in this area, there's, uh, a few bereavement groups, like the one I went to, but they had a strict rule. And the rules were you couldn't go in there if you were, um, you had to be three months after your loss. You couldn't go in before. Um, and the first three months were the most difficult for me. Mm. You, they wouldn't let you in if they, let's say, reached their capacity of, let's say, 10 people. Then they would say, we're full, you can't go in. If a person's loss is over a year, uh, maybe 18 months, they'll say, well, it's too long now. You you can't come in this group. Mm. So they had all these restrictions. And after the eight-week program is over, then they would say goodbye. So after my first bereavement group, I was like, well, that wasn't enough. 
I need more. Uh-huh. And the other thing that I didn't like was that every I know everyone has to tell their story, and I respect that. But not everyone is able to hear every single person in the room's story, especially if there are 10 stories. So I found that, for me personally, a struggle. Uh-huh. So I wanted to create something for widows and widowers that they could go to where they didn't have to tell all the details. All they have to do is say, let's say, suicide or overdose or car accident without saying the whole way the person killed themselves. That was just too much for me while I was grieving to listen to. And I take people before the three months and I have a continued program with some social things because there was nothing here for me socially. Um, I was 42 and I only had something for seniors. They had nothing for anyone my age. And I wasn't about to go back to bars again, like when I was 18. Uh That wasn't for me. So there was nothing for me. Uh We have an after group where we have a Halloween party and a picnic and a walk and uh, just like a get together where everybody brings a meal. And we've had all these gatherings, which right now they're on hold. <laughs> yes, yes, as, the, as they are all around, right? All around the world. We yeah. Are, we're still connecting. We connect on Zoom. And we do uh, every other week I have what we call Chat and Connect. And those are for the longer members. Because with grief, it's not over after the two months. Mm-hmm. There's more. There's, you right. don't know what you're going to come up against. So it sounds like what you did was you experienced the the loss of your husband and you had all these other effects of that, the secondary losses. You looked for some support and you found some, but it wasn't always quite matching what you needed. So you went and you created this project um, that is was um, more accessible to people without some of the restrictions that really hampered you in trying to find support. And you've really valued the experience of, of peer support. So other people who've walked a similar path in losing a partner or spouse who know because they've been there. And I wanted to just say, like, it also strikes me that one of the secondary losses that you had was of a social environment, right? You talk about the social events that you do in your groups. When you lose your partner, spouse, your social landscape changes tremendously. You can't go out with a couple friends anymore. You know, it's like you feel like the third wheel. Mm -hmm. And then who do you go out with? And how do you meet people when you're 40 and 50 and 60 Mm -hmm. years old? Where do you go? Mm -hmm. The 30 year olds that we get, they, I have to say, like, at the end of our groups, they tell me that it's their family now. (laughs) Uh They feel like these people understand what they're going through and they make these long-term bonds. Uh, My group is in existence for 15 years. Um, I'm going into my 15th year of doing groups. Uh Beautiful. And so that ability to know, for people to know that they don't have to be alone, that they can come together with a, with people who understand what they're going through and who can offer support to them without expecting them to expose all of their details, right? Like, you know, yeah. you don't, you don't have to expose everything to get support here. And you don't you, have to have a religious uh, denomination to be part of this. That was another thing, like some of the groups were very um, religious and I wasn't in that frame of mind when I lost my husband. I just needed support. I didn't Mm -hmm. need to be um, spoken to with a religion base. I just needed help. Um, And it's not that I don't believe. It's just that there needs to be something general that everyone can feel like they're welcomed. Mm -hmm. 
And that idea of um, of being inclusive extends to the idea that you didn't put timeline restrictions. You you really recognize that grief begins when the person dies and not three months after. And it doesn't the grief doesn't end at 18 months after that there's it's actually carrying your grief when you lose your partner is um, a lifelong process. Absolutely. It's ongoing. My kids still don't have a dad. You know, it's always going to be that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I remarried, but that person is not their dad, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That person doesn't replace your first husband. It doesn't, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't take that, that, um, that space up in any way. He's just another new person brought into your family right. in his own space and his own way. And that, that space is still held for your kid's dad and your first partner, you know? Peer support is one of the ways that I think we can really meet people in all of those secondary losses because people who've experienced a similar loss have a have a way of understanding those losses, even if their own unique secondary losses are different than yours, they know that they're happening. And so peer support is a real way to offer connection and understanding um, uh, that can really help people through those most difficult months and years. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes people will say to me, I'm not ready. And I'm like, I'll have a one-on-one conversation with them, you know, because you don't know what you don't know, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they think they're not ready, but it gives them so much support. There's nothing to not be ready for, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not pushing dating. Like no, nope. I'm just pushing to be there for them and give yeah. them the tools to help them. It's like, yeah. where do we learn about how to handle grief? You know, there's, yeah. there's no place to learn this. Like we have to teach ourselves and we have to. Um, so we just guide them with all the tools that, that work for all of us and that have helped so many people over the years and we share it with them. And, and Well, and one of, one of the things that also strikes me as beautiful about that process is that you are working with people who have been there and by inviting them to be um, peer support group facilitators, you're actually allowing them to take their experience and become, uh, make something positive of it by offering support to people who are newly bereaved. You know, the, the, your facilitators that you've, that you train and, and move into leadership roles, they get to give back what they received once upon a time. Absolutely. It's a very, it's very healing to give back. I have 21 facilitators. I've trained 28 that are waiting. Mm-hmm. Um, I trained a lot of people because I felt COVID, there was a lot needed. Mm-hmm. Um, after the, I do a three hour class and then they observe for a year before they can become an assistant to an experienced facilitator. Mm-hmm. So we make sure that they're well-trained and they could handle it and they're dedicated. And it really, when you take the focus off of your own pain, it really does help you heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think that we um, begin to find new meaning or purpose in life when there's something like that to give. Um, so you go through the experience of loss, you ex- you feel all of those secondary losses, you find some support and do some healing, and then you bring that healing forward and offer it to others in a way that um, is even more healing for you, right? So so you have a yeah. whole a whole process that is supportive from from uh, from all aspects of the grief experience. Yes, and that's what helps. 
you know, people to move forward. And then they have, they make different goals for themselves. Beautiful. Yeah. And I, and when we talked um, uh, in getting ready for this interview, you mentioned that you have a handbook on how to facilitate bereavement groups coming out. Do you have a date for that, Catherine? I still don't have the date yet. I uh, spoke to the publisher. It's in the editing process. Um, but she had told me I would, it would probably be done in the spring. So I'm hoping soon Hopefully. that it comes out. Um, nice. So that'll be, you know, out there for people who are interested in starting their own um, group. Right now mm-hmm. I have a girl that reached out to me from Ghana, Africa. And she said there's no bereavement by her. And she's taking my three-hour class. And I'm trying to help her so that she could start bereavement there. Nice. Nice. And Jen, and then just by, by sharing what you've learned and, and offering it to people, you're, you're moving that um, ability to be with grief out into the world that way. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for joining me today to have this conversation. Uh, I think um, these are important conversations to have to help people know they're not alone and that there's hope for healing. Absolutely. That's why I took the name widowed not alone because I felt that no widow should ever have to be alone in their grief the way I felt when I went through it Mm -hmm. beautiful thank you so much thank you Maureen thank you for listening to the grief stories podcast I'm your host Maureen Pollard Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.